Good morning. Um, and thank you so much for inviting me to give this talk. Um, as those of you who have given your first talk know, um, uh, you know, it's been just both an agonizing <laughs> and very, um, very enriching process, very life-giving process. So um, I, I feel really lucky to have had this opportunity. So thank you. <clears throat> so I'll start by uh, telling you a story from the Book of Serenity. Um, the Book of Serenity is a collection of 100 Zen stories called koans put together by one of our great Chinese Zen ancestors, Hongzhi, in the 12th century. <clears throat> this is koan number 52. <laughs> um, like many of the stories in the Book of Serenity, it's a conversation between a teacher, in this case, Saoshan, and a student. Saoshan is testing the student's understanding and asks him a pretty, a pretty challenging question. <clears throat> the Buddha's true reality body is like space. It manifests form in response to beings, like the moon in the water. How do you explain the principle of response? <clears throat> the student says rather cryptically, like a donkey looking in a well. Saoshan is quite impressed. <laughs> said, you said a lot indeed. Um, but then he goes on, but you only said 80%. <laughs> um, the student asks, what about you teacher? Saoshan says, like the well looking at the donkey. <clears throat> so I, I love this story. I love this donkey that looks in the well and this well that looks back. <clears throat> so the story makes me wonder about the principle of response and what I might say if I were asked to explain it. How does the principle of response play out in my own life? So many of you know that I'm a yoga practitioner and teacher. Um, to tell you about how I came to study Zen, let me say first that my Zen practice is rooted in yoga, specifically Iyengar yoga. Zen and yoga are different in many significant ways, but both involve training the awareness day after day to open up into deep presence of mind and body in the here and now. I've been practicing Iyengar yoga for 32 years, <laughs> since I was 35. It was at the beginning just tremendously fun and challenging and gave me lots of vitality and joy, but it's gradually become also a quieter, more sensitive practice involving intimate mutual responsiveness of body and mind. This is true for me of both asana, the yoga poses and pranayama. In Iyengar yoga, pranayama is the practice of the extension of the breath while in a state of complete relaxation. It's the long-term training of the diaphragm and ribs to invite and receive slow, deep breaths with intimate, 
delicate, meticulous, and steady attention. I feel all these years of steadying and opening the awareness in asana and pranayama have come to flower in zazen, in sangha, and in my exploration of the great, vast, poetic literature of Zen. I started reading Buddhist books at about age 22, long before I started yoga, and took them to heart as best I could. I didn't really get sitting meditation, (laughs) but there were other things. um, The mindfulness taught in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, for example, uh, was very important to me. I tried to find a sangha, but none of the groups I tried worked out for any length of time. But the reading mattered. At some point, somewhere, I read about the Buddha's flower sermon. The assembly has gathered on Vulture Peak, expecting the Buddha to give a talk, but instead of speaking, he silently holds up a flower. The Buddha holds up a flower, and one of his dis- one of his disciples, Mahakashapa, smiles in response. He sees. I have to wonder what does he see? He sees and spontaneously responds. <clears throat> Another teaching that meant a lot to me when I was young was a passage I copied from a book, though I can't remember which book, and I have been unable to find it. Um, I carried this passage in my purse for many years, <laughs> um, though that little slip of paper has been lost to me now for a long time. <clears throat> it was an interpretation of the koan, the sound of one hand clapping. It suggested that for clapping, there must always be two hands. <laughs> one hand alone cannot clap. <laughs> there are always two. The hands come together respond to each other. They strike each other to make a sound. The passage went on to say that if you love, then you are loved. I think maybe it was the love of God being discussed. If you love God, you are loved by God. The responsiveness of Mahakashapa to what he sees, the responsiveness to each other of the two hands, the responsiveness of body and mind in yoga practice. And now this question from Koan 52, how do you explain the principle of response? It seems just right to me that it was mutually responsive conversation with a friend that brought me here to wholehearted Zen practice. Sorry. Perhaps previous attempts to find a sangha, uh, I've been trying to clap with one hand. This friend is my day. Our friendship was relatively new at that time, but over several lunches, she began sharing with me the subtleties of her experience with Zazen. And I was so interested, could not get enough of it. Wanted to hear more and more. As much as I'd read, I did, not, I did not know Zen study and Zazen could be like that. I started coming here the first Sunday after Hurricane Harvey. <clears throat> May I also say that prior to that Sunday, and for some time after, I had many dreams about white flowers. A white flower, five stories tall, 
a Kleenex box with white flowers printed on it offered to me in a dry cleaners. A flower made of neon petals arranged on a sidewalk. My husband, Mike, filling a brick-walled courtyard with pots of living white flowers. A florist with a big white head <laughs> offering me a pile of exquisite, shiny, jeweled books, and so on. I did not recognize it at the time, but now I think these dreams were an invitation that the Buddha's true reality body was holding up a flower waiting for my response. <clears throat> to go further into the experience of intimate responsiveness, to consider the way our ordinary lives are in responsive relationship with true reality, <clears throat> I'd like to look in some detail at koan number 52. <clears throat> Let me read the initial question again. <clears throat> the Buddha's true reality body is like space. It manifests form in response to being. Uh, in response to beings, like the moon in the water. How do you explain the principle of response? So what does it mean that the Buddha's true reality body, which is like space, manifests form? One way of looking at our world is that cause and effect creates everything. We're, we're used to thinking this way. It's useful and true, Explain thing, explains things makes a narrative, it's scientific, it's ethical. We can look at our actions and see their effects. But another way of conceptualizing the world is to imagine that in each moment, the world spontaneously manifests out of emptiness. Or we could say out of Buddha nature, out of true reality, out of the one, in perfect freshness. Saoshan's question adds that this fresh moment-to-moment -moment arising is in response. The word response, I think, has a different flavor from effect. Uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but response is more conscious and alive, less mechanical. And to say that the world manifests in response to beings, this is to say a wondrous thing. So how does it go? I open my eyes and in response, the true reality body, which is like space, manifests as the visual field. If I look closely, true, you know, if I look really closely, true reality responds by manifesting in exquisite detail. If I look widely, it responds by manifesting myriad forms all at once. This responsiveness is very mysterious. There's the mystery of inspiration. Where does it come from? And why does it so often give exactly the image, the solution one needs? Dreams are another study of mine. Those who study dreams are often, if not always, astonished by their sheer beauty and strange guidance. Where do dreams come from? Surely they manifest in intimate response to the being who dreams them. Here in this temple, we've heard many stories of dramatic or undramatic events that have set practitioners on new paths. 
Royce, where is he? <laughs> Royce, here. <laughs> um, at the time, a meat cutter, skilled with the safe use of knives, um, is in his kitchen when he breaks a dish, cuts himself. I won't go into the very gory details, <laughs> but the cut and the blood lead him to question his life and sends him off to study Buddhism. Tim, in the midst, Tim is in here. Tim, in the midst of a terrible depression, is visited in a waking vision by one of the Tibetan wrathful deities. Um, these wrathful deities, if you don't know, um, are fierce protectors. They're very fierce with lots of teeth and tusks and many arms. And they're very, very terrible and fierce looking, but they are, they are fierce protectors. Um, so Tim has this waking vision of one of these, uh, these fierce deities and his depression breaks. In my case, <laughs> I'm walking down the street in Sendai, Japan, where I've been teaching in an English conversation school. I'm, I'm complaining to my friend Winnie about some shoulder pain I'm having. And she says, why don't you have Robert teach you yoga? <laughs> this little casual, undramatic conversation sets my whole life in a new direction. And one that has somehow surprisingly been just right. These manifestations are clearly in response to beings. Um, wouldn't you say so? <laughs> but I think we can look for this responsiveness at every ordinary moment of our lives. Is my own body such a responsive manifestation of true reality? <laughs> to thoroughly introduce myself to you, I must tell you that along with yoga, Zen, and dream work, um, writing and drawing are also close to my heart. So here is <laughs> my beautiful assistant, Maite. <laughs> She's going to show it maybe first to the Zoom, the Zoom people. <laughs> My say, uh, Galen has something over here. <laughs> okay, so there are two figures facing each other across a, a, a tiny table. Their hands are raised, raised up. Like, like so, and you can see there's a little head coming up out of the water there, <clears throat> being manifested. <laughs> so this is, is a drawing of a body, perhaps my body, <laughs> being manifested. And here's the story that goes with it. And let me, let me tell you, in case you don't know, that a thereminist is a person who plays the theremin. Do you know, do you know what a theremin is? It's, got, it's, a, it's an electronic instrument with two antenna. 
and you wave your hands <laughs> uh, in between the antennas. You can pluck a, a pitch here or pluck another pitch there. Um, it's often used in uh, sci-fi soundtracks. It's got a very woo kind of sound. <laughs> um, so here's, here's the story. Like conductors drawing melodies and harmonies from an orchestra, like thereminists drawing glissandos from the air, from a secret sea, these two draw a body with its bones, its supple interwoven webs of branching nerves and branching veins, fountains of blood and cascading hormones, pourings of all kinds, pulsings, vibratoriums, a world of vision, a world of sound, a consciousness, an I, a capital I, I, a tongue, they draw me in every moment out of a secret sea. Why? Because it's music and they like it. <clears throat> so this started as a dream and became a drawing, then a drawing and a story, and will be part of a book called uh, Tales of the Tender Body. Dreams, drawing, and story all seem to me to be responses to koan number 52. If I really knew my own body as a responsive manifestation of true reality, if I really knew that, how would I live? How would I do yoga? How would I do zazen? How would I walk down the street? If, if I look at a flower or the clutter on my desk, can I look into that flower or clutter and know there the inconceivable body of true reality? Can I look into my bad mood in this way and my exhaustion, those small or large ebbing and flowing waves of anxiety? <clears throat> Looking for the inconceivable in what presents itself to me slows me down. I've been calling it slowing down time. And then sometimes the things I see have a miraculous beauty and clarity, transparency. And somehow in a, a way I can't describe, there's a mutual response. <clears throat> Perhaps Hongzhi, our Chinese ancestor, uh, would say that out of this clarity, I can respond spontaneously and flexibly to situations and other people rather than react out of my habits or rigid views. Um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with this book, Cultivating the Empty Field, which uh, is primarily uh, Hongzhi's practice instructions. Each one is a, is a, a very poetic, ex exquisitely beautiful paragraph of instructions for Zen practice. Um, <clears throat> Um, it was uh, Brandon Lamson that, that introduced me and, and a few others to this book. Um, so here is um, a little bit of one of the practice instructions from, culti from cultivating the empty field about responding spontaneously and flexibly. <clears throat> here it is. Fully appreciate the emptiness of all dharmas 
then all minds are free and all dusts evaporate in the original brilliance shining everywhere. Transforming according to circumstances, meet all beings as your ancestors. Subtly illuminate all conditions, magnanimous beyond all duality. Essentially, you exist inside emptiness and have the capacity to respond outwardly without being annoyed, like spring blossoming, like a mirror uh, reflecting forms. Amid all the noise, spontaneously emerge transcendent. <clears throat> so he's saying you can transform according to circumstances. Essentially, you exist inside emptiness and have the capacity to respond outwardly without being annoyed. <laughs> I would love to be able to do this to do that, <laughs> to respond outwardly without being annoyed, <laughs> like spring blossoming. When Hongzhu, this is the same Hongzhu, when Hongzhu brought together the stories of the Book of Serenity, he added a verse response to each one. Here is Hongzhu's verse response to Koan 52, uh, which by the way, is not from Thomas Cleary's translation, but from Taizan Maizumi's to be found in the Book of Equanimity by Jerry Shishin Wick. I've been reading this poem for 10 years or more after it was given to me by Eric Arbiter. Some of you know, know Eric. Um, <clears throat> I bought a photograph from him of a horse looking into the waters of a, of a canal. Um, and he, he gave me this poem uh, along with it. So this is just here another example of how it takes two, right? <laughs> it takes two. So we finally get to my beloved donkey. <laughs> Donkey sees the well. Well sees the donkey. Wisdom contains without exception. Purity permeates more than enough. Behind the elbow, who discerns the sign? Within the house, no books are kept. Loom threads don't hang, a matter of the shuttle. Patterns emerge every which way. The intent differentiates of itself. <clears throat> the donkey looks into the well. Let's say the water there welling up from the dark underground is the mysterious source of life, source of all manifestation and quencher of thirst. The donkey is looking into mysterious, inconceivable, true reality, we could say. Perhaps she sees herself reflected there. <clears throat> Does she wonder if that shows her just how it is that she is no more and no less than an image, a transparent and transitory reflection on the surface of true reality? And... <clears throat> The well sees the donkey. Is this not an amazing thing to say? Does the well see into the being of the donkey and find itself reflected there? In Dogen's great Genjo Koan, the moon 
representative of enlightenment itself, shines into each and all of the dewdrops on the grass and is reflected in each and every dewdrop, whole and entire. Do we donkeys at every moment reflect within ourselves the moon of enlightenment, whole and entire, whether we realize it or not? If so, how do we live? It has to change everything. Hondra's verse goes on to say, wisdom contains without exception, purity permeates more than enough. This surely does not mean that everything and everyone is wise and pure. <laughs> I take it to mean that this reciprocity of donkey and well, donkey seeing the well, well seeing the donkey, this reciprocity of donkey and well, I'm, I find myself always, does anyone remember this gesture from Tenshin Roshi in, in his last he kept using this gesture that you remember <laughs> this dance of um, the absolute and the relative. <laughs> I find myself doing that. <clears throat> um, so I take this to mean that this reciprocity of donkey and well, of Buddha nature and the world of duality, of emptiness and form, is at play everywhere in each hair on my head each emotional stream and every thought emanating from this body, even in the midst of my suffering. Moments of realization, moments of turning toward true reality can come even to the most despicable. These turning moments may come multiple times in one day or never throughout one's lifetime. According to Hongzhi, this turning toward true reality uh, waits for an opportunity. Here's how, he, here's how he describes this turning in two lines from another poem, Guidepost for the Hall of Pure Bliss. So this book has, um, has two long, long poems by Hongzhi in the back, which are just marvelous. And, and this one is just two lines from the guidepost for the hall of pure bliss. When the mysterious pivot finds opportunity to turn, the original light auspiciously appears. I, I, I really love that. Um, when the mysterious pivot finds opportunity to turn, the original light auspiciously appears. Though we may never realize it, that original light is all pervading, permeates more than enough through the cells of every body. Even if we are never pivoted toward the original brightness shining everywhere, we can have faith that it's here. <clears throat> Let me suggest that the rest of the donkey poem is a description of the manifestation of form out of Buddha's true reality body. Let me read these lines again. Behind the elbow, who discerns the sign? Within the house, no books are kept. Loom threads don't hang, a matter of the shuttle. Patterns emerge every which way. The intent differentiates of itself. 
This process of manifestation happens behind the elbow where it can't be discerned. It's not a mechanical process that you can, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it happens behind, behind the elbow where it can't be discerned. Um, I was uh, sitting in a friend's garden uh, recently um, and there was a lotus blooming behind my back. <laughs> she had a, a water pond. We, was, we were sitting near the water pond. And when we, when we uh, first went to the table, we saw the, the bud there. But while we were talking, it, it bloomed. <laughs> you know, it blooms behind your back. <laughs> it's behind the elbow <clears throat> where you can't, can't, really, can't really see it. Um, it happens in a house where no books are kept. So words may lead you there, but words are not involved in the spontaneous and intimate responsiveness. Loom threads don't hang. In this manifestation, everything has its place. The shuttle weaves everything in. There's nothing hanging out there. It's all woven in. Patterns emerge every which way. We can, we can see them manifested everywhere. And the intent differentiates of itself. This dance of true reality and ordinary existence has its own intentions, though it is responsive in unexpected and surprising ways. <clears throat> so let me end with a passage from Dogen, our great Japanese poet ancestor from the 13th century. This is from the fascicle Plum Blossoms. He's commenting on a poem by his teacher, Rujing, about an old bent and gnarled, gnarled uh, plum tree. <clears throat> so here's what, here's what he says, expressing for us the opening out of a single moment in a single moment in what he calls the human world into inconceivable, vast, true reality. <clears throat> when the old plum tree suddenly opens, the world of blossoming flowers arises. At the moment when the world of blossoming flowers arises, spring arrives. There is a single blossom that opens five petals. At this moment of a single blossom, there are three, four, and five blossoms, hundreds, thousands, myriads, billions of blossoms, countless blossoms. The old plum tree is within the human world and the heavenly world. The old plum tree manifests both human and heavenly worlds in its treeness. Thus, Hundreds and thousands of blossoms are called both human and heavenly blossoms. Myriads and billions of blossoms are Buddha ancestor blossoms. In such a moment, all Buddhas have appeared in the world, is shouted. The ancestor was originally in this land, is shouted. Thank you.